Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to financial deep dives and expert interview episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays once a week. I host these sessions live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my Instagram stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments and at your convenience, you can now listen here. Hey, family finance moms, happy Wednesday um, and welcome. For those who are new and have never participated in a live Q&A before, I'm Megan, also known as the family finance mom. And this is our first live Q&A of the 23-24 school year. Um, for those who aren't familiar, I take every summer off to be home with my three kids. And so I really focus on empowering you guys with knowledge and education during the school year when I have the time and am able to do it. So I'm just coming back after taking the summer off. Um, and I'm going to be doing live Q&A just once a week this year, just to allow for time to get some other work and content done. Um, every week, the night before, I will post a box where you can leave any questions. They can be personal finance questions, um, financial market related, financial news related, questions about what's going on in the economy. And I will spend half an hour every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. answering as many of those as I can. If you are here watching live, you are always welcome to ask more questions as time permits. Um, and I do post these replays here on Instagram. So if you can't join live, you're always free to ask a question uh, and I will answer it and you can watch the replay later. I also post the audio recording of this to my podcast, Finance Explained, so you can listen on the go. I found that people appreciate that. It's easier um, than kind of trying to watch the video replay on the go here on Instagram. So with all of that being said, I'm going to go ahead and get started um, with the questions that people submitted in the box last night. People who are asking to join the video, um, I don't add other people in the video, so just FYI. Uh, okay. Lots of things that say, glad that you're back, welcome back, and I am thrilled to be back. It kind of feels like shaking off the cobwebs and kind of settling back in, um, but slowly but surely we are getting here. So first question submitted is, what data are you looking to in order to discern the economic effects of starting student of restarting student loan payments? So this is a really, really um, intuitive question. And I apologize in advance if you guys can hear that. There's like a major thunderstorm starting here in the background. So if you hear rumbling, that's what it is. Uh, this is a very, very intuitive question. And from my perspective, kind of given my background knowledge in finance and economics, it is the primary reason that I am very concerned about the economy heading into Q4. It is because student loan payments, for those who've been living under a rock, student loan payments, which have been in forbearance, both in terms of interest accruing and payments coming due, these are all federal student loans, which really accounts for the vast majority of student loans that are outstanding. Um, those have all been on pause. They haven't been accruing interest. People haven't had to be making payments on them since March of 2020. So that's almost four years, three and a half years and some change. 
And in that time period that we've all just lived through, we've also experienced lots of other things like significant inflation. Not having those payments has allowed families to absorb the impacts of inflation and allowed them to continue to keep pace and keep up and increase their consumer spending in ways that they might not otherwise have been able to. Now, why is consumer spending so important? Consumer spending is important because it represents two thirds of US GDP. GDP is the primary metric by which we measure the size of economies around the world, including here in the US. And when people think of kind of what a recession is, it is typically measured as a decline in GDP, meaning the overall economic productivity of the country as it is measured, and there's a formula for measuring GDP, when that goes down and stays down for two consecutive quarters, historically speaking, that has been the definition of a recession. Um, when consumers stop spending, because we represent, again, two-thirds of that GDP number, by and large, historically speaking, that has kind of forced the U.S. into a recession. What else happens in a recession? Well, if we're spending less, then businesses start to pull back. They start to cut costs. They start to hire less. We start to see unemployment increase. When unemployment increases, people have loss of income, and so then they're forced to spend even less. And so that's kind of what kicks off typically um, a recessionary cycle or forces the economy into an overall downturn. And so that is why the fact that student loan payments are restarting in October, that there's likely to be some fallout in the economy from that. So how do we try to quantify what that is? I am not and don't have kind of the manpower and economic resources to put like a very fine tooth calculation on exactly what the impact will be, but I will give you some data points to kind of help you get a sense for the potential of the impact and why there's definitely going to be some type of economic impact. Order of magnitude, I don't have a good answer for that um, as of right now. But just to kind of put some data around the size of this problem. Um, student loans that are currently in forbearance, the federal student loans, total $1.7 trillion currently. That is the largest category of consumer debt only behind housing and mortgages, um, real estate related consumer debt. As I mentioned, payments and interest have now been paused for three and a half years and many families have used the absence of those payments to absorb the rising costs from you know, things like inflation, the fact that food is more expensive housing costs are more expensive, utilities are more expensive, gas has gotten more expensive. That Those loans, while everybody in the US does not have student loan debt, so there are gonna be households that are not impacted by this, there are over 40 million student loan borrowers. I think the latest data says there's something like close to 45 million um, borrowers. In terms of how that impacts and plays out across households, it represents just over one in five of 30 to 44-year-olds that have student loan debt. So basically, if you walk down the road, one in every five, somewhere, depending on kind of what age demographic you're looking at, the primary spending age demographics kind of are those 24 to 45 or even 54-year-old households. 
somewhere between one in three and one in five of every households are going to see student loan payments resume next month. What is the order of magnitude of that for a household? The average balance of people who have student loan debts is over $30,000 and the average payment is over $500. So just think about that for a second. Overnight, one in every three to one in every five households is suddenly gonna have to absorb an additional $500 payment. Where is that money going to come from? That's sort of like all of a sudden overnight, everybody having um, another car payment, for example. Um, it's going to impact people's ability to buy homes. So there's potentially gonna be an impact in the real estate market. When there tends to be an impact in the residential real estate market, that does tend to spill over to broader consumer spending because think of all that consumer activity that is spurred by buying a house, right? Then you go out and you furnish it and you buy decor for it and you buy paint and you hire service providers to do things to improve those houses. That's likely going to slow down significantly. It already has to some degree from higher interest rates, um, but it's going to impede even more people's ability to um, move and find housing. It's going to impact people's ability to buy cars, right? You can't take on a new car payment if all of a sudden overnight you have a new $500 payment that you're having to make every month. Um, I'm trying to think of like some other, but just think about that in the terms of like your own financial context. If tomorrow you go from not having to pay $500 every month to having to pay $500 every month, where do you find that money? Add to that the fact that consumer credit is at an all-time high. So, you know, people borrowing on their credit cards and all the other forms of consumer credit, one of the really big areas where we've seen um, consumer borrowing balloon a lot is in auto loans um, since kind of the 2008 time period. That's also where we're starting to see um, defaults, meaning people not making their payments increase the most. Um, and so that's a big area of consumer spending that when people pull back, um, that's sort of where they start to pull back first. We're already seeing that happen because of higher interest rates, and we're likely to see that kind of accelerate as well. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. Okay, so consumer credit, as I mentioned, is at an all-time high. Savings rates, which savings rates are kind of viewed in aggregate in terms of here's in aggregate across the country what aggregate income is across all households, and here's in aggregate what all consumer spending looks like across all households. And the difference between the two is kind of the implied savings rate. So how much are people putting aside every month? The most recent month, it was at three and a half percent, which is near kind of all time low levels. And so if you think about kind of where things were during the pandemic, when people were getting stimulus checks and things like that, savings rates elevated significantly. People couldn't get out and spend money. They were getting these extra um, uh, cash infusions from stimulus checks. They were getting um, expanded unemployment benefits. People's incomes were kind of elevated above the long-term kind of growth range that they'd been in. And so that really improved savings rates. That allowed people to have some wiggle room over the last couple of years as prices got higher and things like that. People are starting to exhaust that. So now you've exhausted kind of those accumulated savings. Savings rates are at near all-time lows. Um, consumer borrowing is at near all-time highs, something's got to give because overnight, 
a whole bunch of households, a whole bunch of consumers are suddenly going to face having this $500 payment resume. Whatever they were having to pay before has likely been absorbed in other things over the last three and a half years. And now overnight, they're going to have to pull back to find the money to pay for it. I know your question is kind of order of magnitude, what that impact is going to be. I haven't spent the time and done the math to put like a fine tooth detail on it, but just intuitively, something's got to give. There's going to be a pullback somewhere and we'll see kind of over the next three to six months um, how big of an impact it has. And I will be tracking that in things like the monthly consumer expenditure data that comes out, the monthly advanced retail sales data that comes out that gives us a sense of how are consumers behaving. And again, and I probably sound like a broken record when I say this, consumer spending is super important because in the U.S., it drives two-thirds of the U.S. economy. So to the extent that all these people have a $500 payment resuming, and even though it is not necessarily the majority of U.S. households, it is still a significant number of U.S. households, especially households in kind of that prime spending demographic, sort of that 24 to 55 age group. Um, you know, you're talking, like I said, one in every five to one in every three, depending kind of on which age band you're looking at. So I don't know if that helps to kind of frame the magnitude of the issue that we're talking about, but we'll see kind of over the next three months as I share those data points that get released every month, what we're seeing the impacts being and how it might potentially play out. Okay, great first question. All right, next question. 529s can now transfer to Roth IRAs and transfer between siblings. When did this happen? So this is kind of two different questions. The first question about the transfer between siblings has actually always been true. For those who aren't familiar, a 529 plan is a college savings plan. You set it up. It is actually always in whoever sets it up. It is technically your assets. So actually the account is in your name as a parent or your name as a grandparent or your name as an aunt or uncle, whoever is setting up that account. Then you designate a beneficiary. The beneficiary is whoever is going to be withdrawing the assets from the account and using it to make educational payments. So paying for college tuition, paying for books for college. Um, it can now even be used for K through 12 tuition and things like that. The beneficiary that you designate can change at any point in time. And that has always been true. So I could have an account for my oldest child. Maybe she gets a full ride to college or maybe she pursues a different path. Maybe she chooses to go into the military and then they pay for her college. Um, maybe she gets an athletic scholarship that pays for a significant part of her college. And so there's funds left over. I can, at any point in time, change the beneficiary on that 529 account so that then maybe the leftover funds can be used by my youngest son when he goes to college. Um, that has always been true. You are the custodian. You have the ownership and the control of that account. Give me one second. Okay. Um, and so that has always been true that you could change the beneficiary at any point in time. You could change the beneficiary to yourself if you decide at some point you want to go back and get a master's degree or a graduate degree of some sort. 
You could change the beneficiary to a grandchild down the road. That has always been true. The second part of your question about rolling contributions from a 529 plan to a Roth IRA is a much more recent phenomenon. And technically, legally speaking, it hasn't officially taken effect yet, but the legislation has passed. There was something passed in 2022 called the Secure 2.0 Act. And it was passed and it included a whole bunch of different things, but it, the purpose of it was to try to address some retirement concerns in the US. It's not a newsflash to anybody, but entitlement benefits, things like social security are under some stress. There's discussion that they need to be revamped. Um, you know, obviously inflation has made the need to have retirement assets more, you know, you need more retirement assets in order to cover your cost of living. And so it was legislation designed to allow for middle-income households to have greater retirement savings and incentivize people to utilize some of these existing things that are already in place to save more for retirement. The piece of it that applies to 529 plans um, actually takes effect in 2024, so we're not that far off from it. Here are the rules around how it works. The for a 529 plan, in order to make rollover contributions to a Roth IRA and preserve all the tax benefits, the plan, the 529 plan, has to have been in place for at least 15 years. So let's say that my child is 10 years old. I open a 529 plan for them. I've been contributing to it for the last you know, 15 years. My child is now 30, they're past the point of you know, getting their education and there's assets left in this account. What can I do with it? Well, if you don't have a beneficiary you wanna change it to, now you can roll over up to a $35,000 lifetime limit. Those assets can now be rolled over into a Roth IRA subject to the annual Roth IRA contribution limits which you, I think are somewhere right now around $6,500. They move every year or so. But so now that they're 30, every year I can roll over up to the annual contribution limit so that I think it's $6,500 this year. This year I could, in 2024, I can start rolling those assets over. So now I've been saving for their college. They didn't use all the funds, but rather than face tax penalties and withdrawing it, I can now use those funds to jumpstart my child's retirement. And the reason for the removal of, um, or the change in this is to remove some of the hesitation that people have in using 529 plans. You know, I hear from a lot of parents that say, well, what if my kid doesn't go to college? I don't wanna lose the money. You are never at risk of losing the money. You might just at some point have to pay taxes on the gains that you weren't having to pay while it was slated to be used for educational purposes. Now, you don't have to pay taxes on the gains either up to this $35,000 limit that you can roll over those funds to help jumpstart your kid's retirement. So it's removing kind of another hindrance or hurdle for people who might have been hesitant to set money aside in a 529 plan for college, worried that like their kid wasn't going to use it all or their kid might not use it at all. Now you can also use it to fund their retirement down the road if that ends up being the case. So hopefully... Um, that answers the question and how it all works. Again, that begins in 2024. So starting in 2024, if you have a 529 plan that's been around for 15 years, 
and you want to reallocate those assets to a Roth IRA, you can do so kind of under those um, rules and limitations I just outlined. Okay, next question. Are IPOs like ARM wise for individual investors? Here's the deal with an IPO. They're always flashy and exciting and fun. Sometimes there's like a big pop in the price at, um, uh, oh, going back, somebody had a question about that, the child's retirement or the parent's retirement. So this is a good question to ask. It has to be whoever the designated beneficiary on the account is. So you could change the beneficiary and then you can roll over the um, funds to a Roth IRA as long as the beneficiary matches. So if the beneficiary designated on the 529 plan is your child, it would have to be rolled over to a Roth IRA in that child's name. If you change the beneficiary to your own name, you could then roll over those funds to a Roth IRA um, for yourself. So good question, good, clarif good clarifying question. All right, back to the IPO. IPOs always make big headlines. Um, some IPOs, <coughs> excuse me, it's been a while since I talked this much. Some IPOs, um, I would say it's usually the ones that get headlines that are the ones that, you know, like the stock goes public at $15 a share and the end of the first trading day, it's up to $40. Here's the thing. Most average individuals are not going to get access to pre-sales of IPOs. My very first job on Wall Street as a summer intern at an investment bank, it was actually ironically for Lehman Brothers, which no longer exists. I was assigned um, to the equity capital markets desk. The equity capital markets desk sort of serves as a hub between the sales and trading side of an investment bank and the investment bankers. So think of like the investment bankers are the people that their clients are corporations. So in this case, the people that are representing ARM that are helping them set up their IPO. Sales and traders are the ones that kind of face um, the investment side, the investors. So they're the ones that get calls from mutual funds, from high net worth individuals, from people who want to buy and sell stocks on a daily basis. And the equity capital markets desk kind of sits as the hub between the two. When there is an IPO, and that just stands for initial public offering, it is the first time that a company is listing their shares for trading in the public market. They go from being typically privately held, and that could be, you know, a family business that somebody has owned for a very long time. Um, more and more often today, it's like private equity owned. And so it's you know, private equity funds and hedge funds that are taking some of these companies public. And sometimes the company itself is raising money. So they're selling brand new shares that is infusing capital into the company. Sometimes it is existing private shareholders like private equity funds or like the founding family that is selling off some of their ownership stake in order to diversify and get cash for themselves. And the equity capital markets desk builds what is known as a book. So all the salespeople go out and they talk to their clients and they say, hey, are you interested in this deal? How much are you interested in? Like how many shares do you want to own? And at what price are you interested in? And so we record all these orders and we use that to figure out what the price should be. 
Now, typically you try to price it such that you clear or you're able to um, sell all that the company wants to sell or all that the shareholders who are trying, the private shareholders who are trying to sell, that it all goes, you know, that all the shares are spoken for. You usually also want to set it at a price that's going to be supported in the aftermarket once it starts trading in the open market. The worst thing that can happen is you price it at, say, $10, and at the end of the first day, it's trading at five. You don't want that to happen. That is why people get excited about IPOs. They think they're going to get some sort of a deal. The reality is, is that an IPO is like any other kind of publicly traded company out there, right? The price whether it's a good price or not, depends on a whole bunch of factors. It depends on the company's fundamentals. It depends on the demand for the business at any point in time. It depends on how well is this company growing? Like how much faith do you have in the management team? Is it priced fairly? So I'm not saying don't buy into an IPO. I'm not saying that IPOs don't have, you know, there are things like the Google IPO where it pops like by 100% in a very short time frame. But typically the people that are going to get those benefits are the ones that buy in kind of pre-IPO, that get an allocation before it starts trading on that first day. And then the people that start buying in on that first day usually aren't going to get as much of a benefit from that. And also, by the way, the investment bank, when they're building that book, they're going to try to award shares to people that are gonna hold it. They don't want people who are gonna sell out on the first day so that the stock falls flat. Um, and so you have to keep that in mind too. Yes, sometimes they try to award allocations to big clients, um, high net worth individuals that you know do a lot of business with them, things like that. Um, but again, I would kind of, what I would say is do your homework read the prospectus, which is the offering document that will outline kind of the financials of the company, see where the IPO is going to get priced. What is it going to trade at in terms of dollars per share on that first day? And see if that makes reasonable sense to you, just like you would with any other stock offering, and then see if you want to buy at that price. So there are companies that could be good investments, um, but whether now is the right time to invest is always going to be dependent on price. And an IPO is really no different. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I hope that helps in terms of how I think about it and how I thought about it, both in terms of as an investment banker pricing the IPO and also as somebody who then worked in a hedge fund and looked at buying into IPOs um, as well. So, okay, let's see what else. What is a hedge fund and is it comparable to a mutual fund or an ETF? So this is a really good question. Um, it's one that comes up in a whole bunch of different permutations. One of the things I'll do when I'm done here is I will link up a post that I already have that talks about the difference between an ETF and a mutual fund. There are ways that hedge funds, ETFs, and mutual funds are the same, and there are ways that they are different. In general, all three are a fund. A fund essentially means you have a pooled set of assets. Pooled means like we have a whole bunch of different people. They all put their money in. You have a central manager that then manages those that pool of assets to make investments on behalf of the investors who've invested into that pool. That is true for hedge funds. That is true for mutual funds. That is true for ETFs. Um, after that, things start to get a little bit different. 
A hedge fund historically meant that they used hedges in order to offset risk. So it might mean they take long and short positions. It might, it could mean a whole bunch of different things. It can cover a whole bunch of different strategies, just like a mutual fund and an ETF can follow different investment strategies. The key difference with the hedge fund is that it doesn't face the same degree of regulatory scrutiny that a mutual fund does or an ETF does. Mutual funds and ETFs are designed with a whole bunch of different guardrails and regulatory oversight because they are targeted to retail investors. And when you're going out to retail investors, there's a whole lot of regulation around it that all kind of dates back to the Great Depression. After the Great Depression, there was a whole lot of legislation that was passed um, to protect everyday retail investors. And there's a whole bunch of rules and regulations and filing requirements that are associated with retail funds that are accessible to people like you and me. And that is kind of applicable to mutual funds and ETFs. Hedge funds don't have to abide by all those rules, but they are own, and because of that, they're only open and available to what is known as qualified investors. Um, when I worked in hedge funds, kind of on the marketing and product development side, one of my jobs in terms of like going out to raise funds and running kind of the investor relations side for some font funds was having to qualify investors. It's literally like a checklist of things that somebody has to meet. It tends to be somebody who's high net worth. There's an asset threshold somebody has to have and or an income threshold, meaning you have to have a certain amount of income every year. And it basically, rightfully or wrongly, is saying that if you have a certain level of wealth and or make a certain level of income a year, the SEC is going to assume that you know what you're doing and you understand the risk that you're taking. And you understand that this is a hedge fund and is not subject to the same level of oversight and regulatory scrutiny that you're going to get with a mutual fund or um, an ETF. Typically, also associated with the hedge fund, you're going to have a minimum level of investment requirement. Um, historically, that used to be like a minimum of a million dollars for like an individual and for like larger institutions like endowments and things like that, it might be as much as 10 million or more. Um, and so you're just sort of talking about things that are available to a different segment of the investor population, if that makes sense. Um, but in terms of ways they're the same, they're all pooled groups of assets overseen by a manager investing on behalf of other investors. They all can have all sorts of different strategies, right? Like you can have a long, short equity hedge fund that buys shares long and sells shares short. You could have a macro hedge fund that invests and in, doesn't even invest in equities. It can invest in bonds and futures and um, foreign exchange and currencies and things like that. Um, and that's true for mutual funds and ETFs too. Uh, it's just kind of who has access and who they target in terms of their investors that is really kind of the biggest difference. And that is has to do with kind of what the regulatory oversight is associated with it. Um, okay, I'm bumping up against the 30 minute mark, but I'm gonna see if there's, I think that was it for today. So great questions to get things off as always. Please remember that never be afraid to ask a question. 
There is nothing that I'm ever going to say that that's a bad question. Most of the questions I get from you guys are excellent. And really, it's just something that you haven't learned yet. Not everybody is an expert in finance, and that's why we're all here to learn. And I'm happy to share my knowledge and expertise um, from working in the industry. Couple things just to be aware of that are happening in the world and here at Family Finance Mom this week. One, this morning, right before I hopped on here, we got the August CPI numbers. CPI is the Consumer Price Index. It is one of the measures of inflation. Obviously, we've been very focused on inflation over the last couple of years because it had gotten so high. Inflation, just as a reminder, is an increase in prices. And we've all felt that. We all feel it at the grocery store. We feel it at the gas station. We feel it um, anytime we go out to buy anything these days. And so the Fed, as a reminder, has been raising interest rates in an effort to lower inflation. And so these data that come out every month, we're seeing like, is it working? Um, is it having its intended effect? What I will say is that it has slowed down significantly. We're no longer looking at, you know, nine and close to 10% annual inflation where food costs, you know, $10 last year and today it costs $11. But we are still seeing inflation higher than it used to be and higher than where the Fed wants it. They're targeting 2% annual inflation. That's kind of what is considered to be normal and associated with natural productivity growth and is something that is stomachable um, by consumers and is tolerable. Um, and it's still been hovering. And like I said, I haven't looked at what it came out um, at today, but we're still looking at something that is running closer to like 3% and in certain categories, 4 and 5%. Um, so we still have some work to do. One of the things that, um, and I'll break out the data in stories today or maybe in a post, one of the things that you should be aware of is that over the last year, we've had a lot of benefit from reduction in energy prices. Um, they had gotten really high. They had started to come back off. And as we kind of pass over the annualization of that, we're now seeing the reverse. We're seeing no longer is energy a source of deflationary pressure or lowering of prices energy prices are starting to tick back up. And so that is a concern because it can contribute to inflation again. Um, and so that's something to kind of keep an eye on. And I'll break out sort of the different drivers of the CPI this month. Um, so we'll see where that, where that came out this morning um, once I hop off here. Another thing is you guys finished voting on the Q4 FFM book club. It was super close, like kept bouncing back and forth around the 50-50 mark. So I will take a look at where the poll ended up and I will share the final pick for the Q4 FFM book club later today. Um, just as a reminder is the way that works, anybody is welcome to join. The idea being that if we all read a bunch of different finance books on different topics as a group, this is a platform where we can read it together, discuss it, you can ask your questions and we can deepen and further our financial knowledge together. Um, we will have until December, so you will have the rest of September, all of October, um, all of November to read the book. And then we will begin talking about it the first week of December. Um, so keep an eye out for that. And the way we talk about it is just here on Instagram. I'll put up posts that are tagged with the hashtag FFM book club. And you can just opine in the comments and talk back and forth amongst yourselves and with me about various topics that the book brings up. Trying to think what else. Those are the big things that are kind of happening today. 
Um, thank you guys for bearing with me as I kind of settle back into things. The start of the school year was uh, not a whole lot of fun. Um, my husband and I ended up both having COVID the first week of school. It is the first time we've had it like since all of this began. So I guess you could say we were due. Um, but it certainly was not part of the plan of getting everything back up and running, but we're all better. The kids stayed well through it. So that's always a good thing. Um, I will be back here live next Wednesday. Just as a reminder, we're only going to do these once a week, just so I can try to get some other, uh, work done to share with you guys. So look for the replay. If you're just joining now, you can find the replay here on Instagram in my video feed. And you can also find the audio replay uploaded to my podcast, Finance Explained, later today. I hope you guys have a great rest of the week. And as always, keep your questions coming. Thanks for listening to today's Q&A replay. As a reminder, to get your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.